It's finally happened, folks. I have started to flatline as a musician. It's true. I, no way. Thank you indeed, but it's, it's happened. By that, what I mean is that I've reached the point in my musical journey, it's a funny term, musical journey, where I'm no longer getting any better. I might not be getting any worse. I might not be getting any worse, but I'm certainly not getting any better as a musician. You know, I sit down at the drums and find myself playing the same old grooves. I go to write on my keyboard and I'm reaching for the same melodies again and again. I sit down on my guitar and I'm playing the same four chords. God forbid that that would be true of the church, eh? It's a low blow. And I've, I've basically graduated into a phase of musicianship that I like to call the dad phase, which will be horribly offensive to some dads in the room. But what, what I mean by this, the dad phase is the phase in which I realize that I'm not getting any better. And to compensate, I've just started to buy more gear. So I'm by now buying more guitars, more guitar pedals, in the hope that it's going to make me more technically proficient. And of course, it doesn't. It doesn't help whatsoever. You just have more gear and less room in your house. But I've realized that the reason I've stopped growing musically, the reason that I've kind of hit this plateau, is because I've stopped being challenged. You know, it used to be in days gone past when I was a rock star that I'd spend lots of time in bands with people who were much better musicians than me and they were always sort of forcing me to step it up. Or I'd be in situations where I'd have to play pieces of music where that were just above my ability. Does that make sense? You know, I stopped growing. I've stopped growing as a musician because I haven't been challenged. I haven't been challenged my, like challenging myself or being challenged by other people. And of course, that's not just true of music, is it? There's uh, countless stories of how that's true in athletics and sport. That if you want to grow, if you want to take things to the next level, you have to be challenged. But it's also true of our lives. As human beings, often it's in times of challenge when we grow the most. It's in times of real difficulty when we develop. You know, I'm, I'm a massive fan of superhero movies. Guilty. And, but you see the narr this narrative in every superhero movie basically ever written, that the hero has to, has to face difficulty, a, a sort of dark night of the soul, usually about two-thirds of the way through the movie, for them to arise to the occasion of being a hero in the end part. Difficulty grows us. When have you learned the most in your life? Has it been when things are really good or when things have been really difficult? Have you learned more from success or failure? If you're anything like me, I'm willing to bet it's the latter. And this really was what we've been looking at the few weeks, this story of Jonah. This is Jonah's unfolding experience. You know, he's run away from God. He's run away from his calling, run away from his life. He's boarded this ship. A storm has come. And now we find ourselves here in chapter two where Jonah has volunteered for himself to be thrown off the boat and he's sinking down into the water. And what we found is that God has orchestrated or at the very least worked through challenges in order to wake Jonah up. God has orchestrated these challenges in order for Jonah to grow, in order for him to become the man that he's supposed to be, the person that he's called to be. Ultimately, the invitation that God holds out in challenge is for, God, is for Jonah to become alive to him, fully alive to God. 
I don't know if you, like me, you read through the book of Jonah and you wonder why God would chase after someone that is so spiritually incompetent. Sort of saying that to myself this morning. But, you know, Jonah is this prophet of the Lord, right? And he's, he's run away and God has had to orchestrate so many things to try and get his attention. If you're like me, you probably wonder, why hasn't God just chosen someone else, someone more pious, someone more zealous, someone that will obey instantly? And I think it's because God, I think it's because God loves Jonah. I think God cares far too much about Jonah for him to settle for lesser things. The the, the story that we're reading is about two things. God isn't just calling Jonah in this story so that Nineveh will be transformed. He's also interested in Jonah's transformation. God never is interested in the transformation of the many at the expense of the one. And this is the invitation. This is really what I want to talk about today. If you remember one thing, remember this. Jonah, this story is really an invitation of what of the gospel. It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration of the invitation, if you like, an illustration of the invitation of, that the gospel holds out to us. The question is, do, will we let God bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can take up real life? Will we let God empty of us of all the things, all the places that we search for fulfillment, all of the places that we search to figure out what it is to be human so that we can actually become fully human by knowing Jesus and by following him? That's the invitation of the gospel. That is salvation. And as we've been looking, about, looking at, that's what the book of Jonah is all about. Let me pray and then we'll continue. Lord Jesus, we want to say yes to you this morning. Thank you that your invitation to every single person in this room today, whether we know you or not, your invitation is to life. Thank you, Lord, that at the end of ourselves, we can find you. That you're running towards us, Lord. Holy Spirit, use these words today. Speak to us. Speak through me that you would be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few years ago, I was in my first year of training at Vicar School, Vicar College. And honestly, it was one of the most difficult years of my entire life. I'd kind of had my own sort of Jonah experience. I'd been running away from some unprocessed grief in my life. I'd run away from a relationship with someone that I really cared about and loved very much. It's okay, we're married now. Breath out, it's okay. And I found myself in a context, I found myself in a situation, a church context in fact, where I felt like I had nothing to give. I felt like I had nothing to offer. And in this time, God started to reveal things to me, things about who I was in my deepest parts, things about who I really thought God was. And a lot of this revolved around a man called Matt. And Matt is now one of my best friends. His beautiful son, Bezalel, was my godson. But at the time, when I got to this this place, Matt was also training to be a vicar with me. And Matt, I found out very quickly, was basically good at all the stuff that I was good at. 
He could do everything I could. Anything I could do, Matt could do better. He wasn't trying to. He was just being himself. It was me that had the issue. You know, I, I would measure myself often in church context by whether I was any good at this. You can decide later. But whether I was any good at preaching, proclaiming the word of the Lord. And Matt, Matt was better. And so I thought, well, that's okay though, isn't it? It's okay that he's better at preaching because I'm not just the guy that preaches, ladies and gentlemen. I also play music, did you know? And it turns out that Matt was also an amazing musician. And I thought, okay, he's good at preaching. He can play music. But, but, I'm not just a musician. Oh, no. I play all the instruments. You've guessed it. Matt could play all the instruments. Anything you put in that man's hand, he could make a tune out of. And I thought, well, that's okay. He might be good at preaching, and he's better at music, and he plays all these instruments like I do. But I'm kind of, you know, chubby and warm and good with people. And Matt was good with people. As well, he was warm and kind and funny and good with people. Anything I could do, Matt could do better. And I joke about it now, but at the time, this sort of comparison left me really at rock bottom. When I added together that with all the other things I was going through in my life, I sort of felt I had nothing to give. I felt completely useless. And my point is this. Sometimes it's when we hit rock bottom. Sometimes it's only when we hit rock bottom that we figure out what we really believe. We figure out who we really are, what we really think even of God. For me, I was in my first year of training to be a vicar and I realized that I still put more of my identity, more of my trust, more of my effort into gifts, into being known, into being significant and important than into being a son of God. Does that make sense? then into being a child of God. And this is where Jonah is in chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This is chapter 117, actually. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah in the fish begins to pray. Jonah has, has got onto the ship, hasn't he? And this storm, this storm has arrived. And he's so desperate. He's so desperate to flee from the Lord that he even volunteers to be thrown off a ship. He's so desperate to keep going down that he volunteers to be thrown overboard. And so he does. So he gets hurled overboard and then, now rather, he's in the water. This is what he's describing in his prayer, right? He's in the water. And the, the Hebrew word, or at least the connotation for, for in the Old Testament for water, was also this idea of chaos, that God in the, in the first part of Genesis bought shape, bought life, bought the earth out of the chaos of water. He made dry land. And so if you like, Jonah has thrown himself into chaos to get away from God. Thrown himself into his own chaos and into the chaos of the water. And just humor me for a second and imagine what this is like. You've jumped off this ship in the middle of a storm. As any of you know who have, who have swum in choppy water, anything from the water when it's just your head sticking out looks 10 times bigger, doesn't it? The smallest boat that you've come out of looks impossible to get back into, or at least must be my experience. You know, he's trying to take a breath, and as he tries to take a breath, water fills his mouth and fills his lungs. He's, he's flapping about, he's waving, he's trying to keep himself buoyant, but he can't. He is helpless, and so he begins to sink. 
He sinks down below the waves. He sinks down into the seaweed, it says. And we get to the point where, as Jonah puts it, he goes down to the roots of the mountains. The very bottom. This is literally rock bottom, isn't it? Uh, Literally rock bottom. He is hit of the sea. And in this rock bottom place, I mean, this is a bit of artistic license here now, so go with it. But, you know, and he's hit rock bottom and then he sees these two eyes, doesn't he, appear out of the dark of the water. Just for, a, just for a second, imagine the kind of size of fish this would have to be to swallow a person. You ever thought about that in the book of Jonah? And he sees these eyes coming out of the dark as if things can get any worse. Leave me in peace to just drown. Leave me in peace here at the roots of the mountains. And this fish comes up to him and it opens its mouth and he makes his way past the teeth through the gullet and now he's in the dark, dank, smelly belly of the fish. Jonah is hit, rock bottom. He's totally helpless, isn't he? There's nothing he can do in this situation to save himself. All of his, as as one commentator says, he has lost all of his buoyant self-sufficiency. Willpower can't help him. He has absolutely no idea where this fish is headed or if he'll ever get out of it. And so what does Jonah do in this moment of total Total loss, total helplessness. What does he do? He prays. Chapter 2, and Jonah prayed to the Lord. What do you do? What do you do when you're helpless? When you've had moments in life where you can't save yourself, where you can't fix it yourself, you can't control a situation, maybe a relationship, when you feel completely Helpless, what do you do? One of my earliest memories, in fact, as I was, I was preparing this, I think probably my earliest memory is when I was about three and I was at a family get-to. I had loads of cousins. My mum was like one of nine kids. It was chaos. And I had all these cousins and all these aunties and uncles. And every year we used to go uh, to this primary school and we used to have picnics and play rounders. And there was this... Uh, there was this outdoor swimming pool. And I remember being three years old, jumping into this swimming pool with my sort of rubber ring thing in my speedos, jumping into this pool and going straight through my rubber ring. I slipped straight through it and I couldn't swim. And so I was completely helpless. And in that moment, I don't know if you've ever sort of panicked in a pool, but it's like no one pays attention to you. There's so much noise around, isn't there? That it's like you could quite easily slip to the bottom without anyone noticing. And that's how I felt. In reality, if I played it back, it was probably like, you know, maybe 10, 12 seconds. At the time, it felt like an eternity. Flapping about when I was completely helpless, crying out, shouting out for someone bigger than me to help. And then lo and behold, my older cousin James who is today still the most handsome man I've ever met, grabbed me in Baywatch style and put me on the side of the pool, and I was better. You know, Johnny made the point last week that the story of Jonah in chapter one is that Jonah goes down, 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 doesn't he? Jonah goes down from the presence of the Lord when God calls him. He goes down to Tarshish to board the boat, he goes down into the boat, and then when he's on the boat, he goes down into the bottom of the boat and falls asleep, if you remember that bit. 
And now he's been thrown off of the boat and he has gone even further down. He has gone as far down as he can go from bad to worst. And yet, in this moment of prayer, when Jonah is completely helpless, he starts to turn outwards. He stops focusing on himself. He stops sinking down, running away from God, and he starts to turn outwards. He starts to look away from himself because he realizes that nothing in of himself is going to help, that he needs to look beyond himself. He needs to look to God. He goes out, out, out. The ESV version of the Bible captures this quite well. Listen to this, verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed out to the Lord. I called out to the Lord, he says, out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried out. Do you see that? Jonah has gone down, down, down. And now when he's helpless, he cries out. And it's our instincts, like me in that pool. It's our instinct when we're kids to do this. When we're helpless, it's our instinct. But in adulthood, so often when, we, when, we, when we're challenged, when we get really low, when we hit rock bottom, we don't ask for help. We don't move outwards. In fact, if you're anything like me, you move inwards. You're at rock bottom and you move inwards to yourself. Maybe you become defensive. Maybe you become cagey. Asking for help becomes the thing that you avoid. You need to keep up appearances. Or you grab at anything that can help you to ignore the situation. Maybe Netflix, entertainment, distraction. Maybe a relationship. Anything that can stop you realizing the state that you're in. As kids, we go down and out. As adults, we sometimes go down and in. And what we're learning in the story of Jonah is that when we hit rock bottom, God is giving us the opportunity to call out. In our helplessness, he is able he wants to move. When we hit rock bottom, we have the opportunity to stop medicating ourselves. All of us are medicating. All of us are, are escapists. If you're a human being, you're an escapist. If it's me, if it's, if it's, for me, it's food and TV. It's my medicine. And at rock bottom, we have the opportunity to give up these things that we're medicating ourselves with and turn to God for healing. Jesus calls himself, doesn't he, the great physician. We stop trying to plug a gap and we turn to Jesus. So, so, everyone okay? Still with me? So what is crying out? What is it for Jonah? What is it for us? Crying out is prayer. This is what we see in this chapter. Jonah cries out by praying, by praying to God. You know, I think praying is really the ultimate act of giving up. When we pray to God, we, we, we're sort of saying, you know, indirectly, I can't fix this. I can't control this. I can't do this. I give up trying to change my circumstances. I give up trying to play God, and I let Jesus be God. In prayer, we're gonna, as we'll see a little bit later, when Jonah turns to this moment of prayer, this point of challenge actually becomes a blessing to him, doesn't it? This moment of challenge, because he's got nowhere else to turn. He can't turn to himself. His only option is God. And the one thing I should say about that first year that I had in Vicar School, when things were really hard, is that it was also the year where I grew the most in prayer. 
It's the year I got to know God most because I had nothing else to lean on. Our challenges can be blessings. But it is a choice. That's the thing that we see here. Jonah could just sink down, but he chooses to pray. Life is difficult. Challenges come, and prayer is a choice within that. Eugene Peterson, the late, great Eugene Peterson, says this. He's talking about Jonah. He says, what we want is a five-star hotel by the sea and a room with a view. An ideal place to commune with God. I can relate to that. Quiet, restful, and serene. What we're actually given is a sinking ship in an unrelenting storm where we're tossed overboard into an unmerciful sea, where we're swallowed whole by a claustrophobic set of confining circumstances. In the hotel, we can call anyone we want for assistance, the maid, the maitre d', the manager. In the belly of the fish, this is the important bit, in the belly of the fish, there's only one call we can make, and that is to God. In the belly of the fish, there is only one call we can make, and that is to God. Christianity, following Jesus, is about giving up. It's not about trying harder. It's not about trying to fix yourself. It's not self-help, looking on the world with a sunny, positive attitude, trying to draw out the gold in everything. Christianity is about giving up, realizing that you can't save yourself, that you have tried, that we try, and that we fail. Paul talks, talks, says it like this, doesn't he? He says that the grace of God is sufficient for us. Our power is made, his power rather, God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power isn't made perfect in our ability. God's power isn't made perfect in our moral effort. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Christianity is about giving up, trying to save ourselves and letting God step into the fray. And it's a practice. This isn't something we do once. This is something we do every single day. This is something I've done about six times this morning before getting up to speak to you. Things running around my head. Oh, I hope I do a good job. Thinking that if anything significant will happen this morning, it will be because of my words. How gross is that? It's true. It's the thought that ran through my head. But we know that it's the Spirit of God. We have to die a death every day. Jesus, in our reading, puts it like this, doesn't he, in John? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is the practice of giving up? What is this practice of stopping saving ourselves? It looks like prayer. For Jonah, it looks like prayer. For us, it looks like prayer. And what can God do with prayer? If the, if the question Johnny asked last week is what can God salvage in the storm? And the answer was everything. And the question this week is what can God do in prayer? And the answer again is God can do everything in prayer. God can do everything in prayer. Let's have a look at verse 4. Jonah is he's sinking down as life, he says, is ebbing away from him. As he's losing his breath, verse 4, he says this. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. I sort of imagine this as Jonah's sinking down in the sea. And as he's losing his breath, his, 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 his kind of one point of comfort 
is to sort of move himself in this water to try and get himself in the direction of the temple, to remember what it was like to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the holy city. He sort of tries to remember the temple. Maybe he tries to move his body so that he's facing the temple. And yet what we see in chapter 2, and this is the point, what we see is that when Jonah prays, the prison of the fish, the confinement of the belly, this dark, dank place of prison becomes a, pres- becomes a temple of the Lord's presence. He looks towards the temple, but what he actually finds is in prayer, this belly he's in becomes a temple of the Lord. Do you see that? This circumstance that he's in, this challenge that he's in becomes transformed in prayer into a place where God wants to meet with him. To a place in our story where God changes everything. He turns Jonah around completely from the one who's fleeing to the one who is ready to take up the call that God has on his life. We can see this in the early church. Acts 16, if you know the story, is where Paul and Silas are in prison. And they begin to worship and pray. And, and later on in the story, the bars of the prison come off and it's this amazing, miraculous thing. But, but for them, it was true too. Their prison literally became a place of meeting with God. It became a blessing. And I think this is the church on fire. I think that this is the church on fire because the, the belly of the whale, this, this kind of picture that we get in this story is where we're at. That's the, this is the world that we live in as Christians. We've got one foot in the suffering of the world in our own challenges, some of them difficult, some of them dark. Illness, suffering, broken relationships, abuse. All of us in this room would have suffered differently and none of this is to make light of challenge. But it is to say that we as Christians live with one foot in the suffering of the world and the other foot in the hope of Christ. The reason we can meet here, the reason that we can sing these songs when we look at the world around us is because we know that Jesus will return and he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear every illness, every bit of suffering. When Jesus is king, all will be well. All will be well. One of my favorite quotes from the uh, John Sentamy, the Archbishop of York, is that as Christians, we live on the intersection between human need and divine love. Don't you love that? Maybe it's just me. But this is where we're at. This is the world that we're in. And I'm going to finish. I'm going to come into land with this. What, what is your prison in your life at the moment? Maybe you're facing a challenge. Maybe you're facing something really difficult. Where might God want to make this point of challenge a place of his presence? It doesn't diminish that it's difficult. It doesn't diminish that it's hard. It doesn't change the facts. It doesn't mean that you're going to be spit up onto dry land and that everything's going to be okay. But it does mean that you can find hope. It does mean that God can change you in the middle of it. Challenges by the Spirit of God, challenges in prayer are transformed into blessings. I really believe that. That has been my story, I promise you. I wouldn't be saying this if I hadn't. Challenges can be transformed into blessings. Where are the prisons in our lives that God wants to transform into temples of his presence? Where are the places in our city that God wants to transform into temples of his presence, either places of captivity or hardship or difficulty. That's why this, this church on fire stuff and this city alive that we always talk about, that they, if, they're, if, they're, if they're happening, they have to feed into one another. 
We can't pray without wanting to pray for our city. We can't seek God's presence for ourselves without wanting to see God's presence flow like a river through this nation. Life is hard. Difficulties will come. The question that we're presented with in Jonah chapter 2 is, will we pray? When we're helpless, when we're in challenge, will we seek God? Will we give up trying to fix ourselves, trying to fulfill ourselves and turn to God? I heard this quote today from a, uh, sorry, yesterday from a Christian psychologist and I'll, I'll finish with this. In fact, no, I'm going to finish with a poem. Why not? And he says this, when I'm at the bottom looking up, the main question may not be, how do I get out of this hole? In reality, the main question might be, how do I get rid of the shovel I use to dig it? It's poems by a guy called Richard Carmichael, and I'll finish with this. He wrote, a, uh, he wrote, he died in the early 90s, but he wrote a book of poems about the book of Jonah. And this is the one he wrote for chapter two. It's called In Touch. Distressed did it. Not easy street. Not Acrelon Avenue, not Prosperity Place or Brightview Boulevard. Not Fairhaven or the Bay of Serenity or the Island of Tranquility, but off course winds and the Straits of Adversity. The tempests of disaster. The deep was round about me. Emergency exits were barred. I was pitted against perdition in a ravenous cavity. I was swallowed up. Better late than never. I remembered the forgotten in prayer. My troubles put me in touch. Amen.